Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Mark Tebow was the first COVID-19 patient in Rhode Island. He spent weeks struggling to breathe, but was one of the lucky ones, or so he thought. My, my oxygen level was 84, which is not good. He was like, where your O2 levels is right now, you should be in an ER because you, you could be having a heart attack. There's been a, ser a serious uptick in, in violence, obviously, uh, with people uh, getting shot. Patrol officer Frank Moody says Providence police recovered a record 200 guns last year. It's not uncommon to make a stop and recover a gun. It's a problem. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Pamela Watts. I'm Michelle San Miguel. It's been two years since the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus outbreak to be a pandemic. Our first story tonight is about people who continue to deal with lingering health issues long after the initial infection. The CDC estimates about 43% of Americans have had COVID-19. While most people make a full recovery, there are many others suffering with long-lasting symptoms of the virus. It's called post-COVID-19 condition, more commonly known as long COVID. Doctors don't know what causes it, and with symptoms ranging widely, there's no one way to treat it. To better understand what it's like to have the condition, we paid a visit to the first person in Rhode Island who tested positive for the virus. We discovered what we believe is the first case of coronavirus here in the state of Rhode Island. The state says it's been preparing for this day. We've since learned new information about the man with coronavirus here in Rhode Island. It was March 1st, 2020, when then-Governor Gina Raimondo announced the first case of COVID-19 in the state. Although no one knew at the time, that patient was school administrator Mark Tebow. He had recently returned to Rhode Island after a trip to Europe where he was chaperoning a group of students. On the flight home, Tebow started to feel sick. His wife Brenda urged him to go to a walk-in clinic near their home in Coventry. I, I would describe it as um, the flu on steroids. It was body aches, extreme fatigue, um, headache like a migraine. Um, difficult breathing, coughing. Tebow's lived with asthma his whole life, but he says this felt different. Several days into being home, his symptoms continued to worsen. The 48-year-old was admitted into Miriam Hospital and became the first person in Rhode Island to test positive for COVID-19. Doctors did not know if Tebow would survive. I kept looking out you know, the glass to the ICU and there were dozens of doctors and state officials and, you know, the infection team and they're all looking at me and I could see them and I'm intubated. Then they, the priest came in and read me my last rites because you know, no one was really sure I was going to, you know, make it in the next 12 hours. Tebow spent three weeks fighting double pneumonia and COVID in the hospital. Once he was discharged, he was motivated to return to his routine. He was worried it would take six months or more to fully recover. 
that I didn't want it to take that long. So I just started really pushing myself, um, you know, to exercise. But several months after leaving the hospital, Thibault still found himself dealing with lingering effects of the virus. He'd experience shortness of breath for 10 to 20 minute intervals, and his blood oxygen level was fluctuating. So much so, he remembers a healthcare worker turning pale while examining him. My oxygen level was 84, which is not good. That's when he explained to me, he's like, where your O2 levels is right now, you should be in an ER because you, you could be having a heart attack. Tebow was like, then referred to a cardiologist. I did a stress test um, and all those tests came back normal and my heart was 100% fine. How did doctors explain it? What was the reason behind it? They didn't know. And, and they, would, they, would, they would be honest with me. They would tell me, we don't have enough information. You're, you're our first person that we're actually studying here. No one was talking about long COVID at that time. You know, that conversation didn't happen months, months later. More than a million Americans could have symptoms for weeks or even months after contracting the virus. Their symptoms run the gamut from shortness of breath to heart palpitations to extreme fatigue. Soon, doctors across the country and around the world began to realize many patients were reporting symptoms that weren't going away. So for a lot of us, we think that the pandemic is coming to an end, but for many patients, the pandemic endures on through this phenomenon and um, really a disease called long COVID. Dr. Francesca Bodwin is an emergency physician and chair of epidemiology at Brown University. Bodwin and other researchers at the School of Public Health are studying the impact of long COVID. There are estimates that anywhere from one in 20 to I've seen as high as 30% of people who've had COVID-19 go on to develop long COVID, but really wide estimates depending on, on the source. So that would mean tens of millions of people in this country are dealing with long COVID. Potentially at the higher, at the higher end, you know, if we're thinking about 80 million plus people who've been infected at this point, it's a lot of people that we're talking about. Liani Santos is among the countless people suffering from long COVID. You never know, you could go in one day to the, go into the hospital because you're having some stomach pains. The next thing you know, you're waking up a month and a half later and your whole life has changed. Santos has been dealing with recurring symptoms since she was hospitalized for COVID-19 in April of 2021. She was five months pregnant when she was placed in a medically induced coma at Rhode Island Hospital. When she woke up a month and a half later, she learned she had given birth to her daughter, Charlotte. And then I remember asking, asking them and I'm just like, I pointed towards my belly and I'm like, how's the baby? And then they just shook their head. And in that moment, I didn't have a reaction because I'm just like processing. Um, so that's when I found out that she wasn't able to be saved. Her daughter lived for eight days and passed away while Santos was still in a coma. The main thing is acknowledging that Charlotte lived. She was here. It's hard. I wish she was here, but she's not. So I got to keep moving. You know, there's other people that depend on me. 
Along with grieving for the loss of her child, Santos continues to have COVID symptoms, including a persistent cough, shortness of breath, brain fog, anxiety, and body aches. You look at me, you think, oh, she's just, she's fine. There's nothing going on. And it's like, little do you know, my back is like on fire right now. And it's just like really hard. Later on, I'm gonna have to get up and I'm gonna have to walk around and have to take care of household duties. Something as simple as standing in front of the stove and cooking, it's like, it hurts. Her family is her motivation to keep going. She takes her father to dialysis in addition to working two part-time jobs. Santos says she and her husband, who also had COVID, depleted their savings while they were sick. A lot of it is still very draining. The little driving she does do is to go to work and to help her family. I just rather limit my social circle and who I'm around because I am afraid to, you know, to have COVID once again, considering it was so severe. Even people who were asymptomatic or had mild symptoms can still develop long COVID. That's right, some people have a seemingly very mild case and then go on to develop symptoms that are delayed in onset. Long COVID qualifies as a disability under the Americans with Disabilities Act, but Dr. Bodwin says she's found that patients become frustrated because they can't get a diagnosis since there is no formal test to check if they even have the condition. And worse, they feel that the medical community doesn't believe them. They feel, um, somebody used the term gaslit by the medical community, that they're being made to feel like this is anxiety or depression from the pandemic or that they're crazy or it's in their head. Santos knows it's not in her head. She spent months in rehab working to regain her strength. Are you hopeful that you will make a full recovery? I'm very hopeful. I'm very hopeful. Um, I don't feel that I survived for me to live in this state, you know, forever. As for Thibaut, he says his lingering COVID-19 symptoms lasted for 10 months before they went away. Every day, he says, he thinks about how grateful he feels to be alive. It usually happens um, on my drive to work in the morning when it's quiet and the sun's coming up and I'm looking at the horizon here and I, I say to myself, I get to see another sunrise. I get to see another green field and a blue sky and, and I appreciate it. Mark Tebow and Liani Santos are now fully vaccinated but had not received the shots when they contracted the virus. Vaccines had not yet been developed when Tebow became sick in March of 2020. And now we turn to a story that offers hope through tragedy. If it seems like you're hearing more about shootings these days, you're right. In 2020, murders in the United States jumped more than 27%, the sharpest increase in six decades. Last year, murder rates went up again. Providence experienced almost two dozen homicides in 2021, the highest number after a decade of decline in violent crime. Tonight, a look at guns and gangs dominating the news and the people who are trying to turn it around. Two days after the city's 23rd homicide of the year, Providence police are investigating a separate shooting. New details about the deadly weekend shooting and the man who was killed. On the 20-year-old man shot on Manton Avenue in Providence last night. These are streets that made me who I am, for better or for worse. 
you got to take the good with the bad, you know, this is a great neighborhood, a lot of good people, very diverse, but there's a lot of opportunities to choose a path that, you know, that leads to death or prison. Many of those caught in the crossfire of that path are young men, often associated with street gangs. Thomas Lumpkins is a former gang member who has turned his life around and is now helping others to do the same. But he says there have been many challenges along the way and personal tragedies. I just recently lost my little brother. To, um, he was murdered recently. And, your um, brother? Wait yes. You lost your brother. He was murdered. Yes. Here in Providence. Uh, yes. That victim's name is Torres Lumpkins, and his brother told me he was a good man. There's things like that that you just don't come back from. You can never, you have to, you know, create a new normal for yourself. Before I turned 18, I'd already been to at least three funerals of close friends. Um, Before prison. the age of 18, yes. you lost three friends. Yes. While in high school. Um, and just recently, I just served a five-year prison sentence for um, actions that I'm not that proud of. Can you say what, what happened? Um, I was arrested for firearms and drug charges. So you made bad choices. Wh why, Thomas? Um, my mom had five kids, and uh, three of us are boys, and there's no fathers in the household. So, you know, you know, she did the best she could. She did a great job, you know, with what she had at her disposal. And there's a lack of opportunities, there's a lack of resources for people, and it shapes their perspective that this is all that they have. Their self-worth is affected by what they see around them. So they just, they dive into this lifestyle. They die or they're in prison. And once you go to prison, it's not a rehabilitative like environment. It's just a warehouse for criminals. There's always constant threats when you're living this lifestyle. Um, people die, you see people die and things happen and um, you got to do something, you know. Sometimes it's either uh, fight or flight, you know. So today, in the same neighborhood where Something he once boy. committed crimes, Lumpkins now mentors at-risk youth. Trying. Yeah, that's the first step. It all starts with trying, effort, and being open-minded, you know what I'm saying? So it's like you chase some accomplishments and that feeling of accomplishment because it's going gonna, it's gonna to push you to do things you really didn't think you could do. You know what I'm saying? I'm speaking because that's, that's what I'm doing. Lumpkins works at the Nonviolence Institute in South Providence. It was founded to generate peaceful alternatives to gang life. The organization sought him out because he's been there. How did you get involved in a crew, which is the new word kind of for a gang? Um, there's just childhood friends. I wouldn't always uh, say like I was in a gang, but you know, that's how the law classifies it. In a neighborhood where there's violence and and just um, just anger, just inner anger from a lot of people that you begin to have turmoil with this street or this family or this things like that, and you just you just um, you band together to protect each other. You know, it's like nowadays it's like it's cool to be in a gang, but it's like when I was younger, it was more about us just kind of protecting ourselves and finding our own identities. Some of them feel like the gangs are there. Their families and you know, Major David LePayton is commander of the investigative division in the Providence Police Department. They're good kids, most of them, not all of them, believe mm. me, but most of them, they're, they're good kids. Uh, a lot of these kids work, you know, they, they, they have jobs um, and they're not hanging on the corner. 
you know, they're, they're not that angry, bitter person mm -hmm. you think that would make a gang kid, right? Yeah. Are there a lot of gangs in Providence? Um, I wouldn't say there's a ton of gangs. Um, see, yeah, you have to realize like a, a gang doesn't get together and register themselves, right? So, so you and I are hanging on the street corner, and then you know, another friend comes, and you know, we hang around for a couple of days, and hey, why don't we call ourselves this, and we'll be, a, you know, it starts like that. What is up right now is gun violence, which is deeply, deeply concerning to all of us. Which means that if you're a person who is involved with guns or involved in gangs, it is, uh, it's dangerous out there. According to Providence Police, three people were shot and one person was stabbed inside of Rebel Lounge here earlier this morning. I would say many of the homicides are due to nothing more than an insult on social media. Or, uh, really? Yes, it's it's not it's not about guns or maybe a girlfriend, an old girlfriend's with someone else. So it, it's not like you'd see in the old days when they talk about you know turf and and you know money and it's just not like that. Um, and you look at it and you say, well, this is just foolish. Like you, not only are you you're taking a life, but we're going to get you. And if you shoot them and you kill them, you're going away for double life. So you're gone too. It doesn't make any sense at all. In all, there were some 75 shootings in Providence last year. 23 were murders, the highest jump in a decade. It's all over the country, uh, the violence and the homicides. What do you make of it? Well, I, if I was to point at one reason why the murder rate has gone up, I would say it was the, the guns on the street. There's a lot more guns on the street. If you remember during the COVID days, you know, a year ago, there was lines outside of gun stores. And what happened was some people took advantage of it and they became straw buyers. And what is a straw buyer? So a straw buyer is somebody that can go in and legally buy a gun. You buy a gun, take it home, and then sell it to somebody who can't legally buy it. Because they have a criminal record? Right. There's been a lot more firearms recovered recently, as you can see. Patrol officer Frank Moody says Providence police recovered a record 200 guns last year. It's not uncommon to make a stop and recover a gun or more than, than one or two. And he says not only is there an arsenal out there, the weapons turn up everywhere. I mean, one instance, I came to work early in the morning. I got off at 95 North at Point Street and there was a gun in the intersection with a, a magazine. That was, so at some point in time, um, somebody had dumped that gun at the intersection. There's been a, ser a serious uptick in, in violence, obviously, uh, with people uh, getting shot. It's a problem. My daughter has these like beautiful hazel eyes. Artist Jem Barros understands how bullets can rip a family apart. During a robbery in 2012, three neighborhood men fatally shot her daughter Shamika in her Providence home. So when I got the news that I arrived at her home, I was greeted right away with the, the, the detectives. And I begged one of them, I said, well, if you go in there and you just, like, if you can just look at her eyes, like she has pretty hazel eyes, and I'll know it's her. Or if you could just shake her and just tell her 
<laughs> and tell her her mom is outside. But he says, ma'am, I'm sorry. And I just knew that she was gone. I knew she was gone. Red Rain is a piece that I created. Gradually, Barrow says she found healing through art. One of her recent paintings reflecting the city's bloodshed is titled Red Rain. It hangs at the Nonviolence Institute, where Barrows is now a community workshop trainer. I wanted it to say that we all bleed the same, that we're all being affected by gun violence. Another local artist, Providence rapper Hammer Beams, became the city's 23rd murder victim late last year. His real name, James Owens. He is Thomas Lumpkin's cousin. Thomas, the trauma of what you've been through, how has that affected you? Um, I like to think it's making me a better person. Um, I like to use everything that I go through to build myself up and build up those around me. Um, there's definitely times where it shakes me. I try to be authentic with who I am and let them know like, I came from where you came from. Like, to some degree, I still am that kid from the streets too but I'm elevating myself, you know what I'm saying? I try to Hover over express to them the importance of recognizing your own potential. And he's doing that by coaching teenagers like Juan Quaranta. I've always seen potential in you, bro, even when you was a little knucklehead. <laughs> a lot of people try to pick you down the bad path and try to, you know, since I'm young, dumb-minded, try to make you do anything. And he took that, he did it opposite, try to make me do better, become a man. Lumpkin says he's trying hard to end the cycle of gang violence by gaining the trust of kids who might otherwise face tragic consequences on either end of a gun. For me, I feel like failure is not an option. I feel like I like to tell myself that I'm destined for great things and I like to make the moves to, to bring myself closer to that, to that goal. But I do feel like I have a chance to have redemption and actually you know, exact some kind of change in the neighborhood that I, that I love. Recently, Providence Mayor Jorge Alorza announced more than one and a half million dollars from the federal rescue plan will help to establish citywide nonviolence training and youth mentorship programs. Some money will go to the Nonviolence Institute. Finally tonight, contributing reporter Bill Bartholomew introduces us to one man and a group of area teens who are fighting gun violence with an unlikely weapon. I've known people that have died from cancer. I've known people that have died from, you know, auto accidents, taking their lives in other ways, complications from diabetes. But I don't know five people that have died from any of those things. But Providence artist and educator Scott Lapham does know five people who died from one singular cause, gun violence. One of his first experiences with gun tragedy was losing one of his students. He was standing in line at a food truck to get a sandwich and he got shot. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was really, really intense, really devastating. Soon after, he lost three more students and realized that this was a much bigger problem. There was, there was Eric, Dougie, and then Vinny. And, um, and over the years, you know, I really started to think about it more, like what was, 
what was happening, how crazy it was. Crazy and close to home, Lapham says the losses brought back a memory he had long tried to suppress, his stepbrother taking his own life. That was a family tragedy, and I didn't really think about it in terms of uh, gun violence. So I really started to look at gun violence as something that was kind of across the board. And it wasn't, you know, I mean, people are unhappy across the world. People have conflict across the world, but not every culture has so many guns to make our human behaviors deadly and fatal. And that's what we have. Lapham decided to blend his experiences with gun violence, advocacy, art, and education into one project with a mission to get people talking about the problem. Launching One Gun Gone in 2015, he and his students take molds of guns, develop a statement of what they want to say, and convert the deadly weapons into art and hopefully start a dialogue. I might just be the next man. Students like Jeremy Perez have experienced this sort of tragedy around them and say they have found a safe haven through the program. Gun violence has affected um, my community a lot. A lot of people have been shot, killed. It's, it's stuff that you see at an early age and it, it affects how you could, uh, you know, as a kid growing up, being able to go outside and have fun. It's very hard when you hear gunshots and you have to run back home. One Gun Gone has given students like Perez a place to channel their energy. And when pieces are sold, the work has resulted in several stunning pieces of art displayed in various spaces, including RISD. The ideas and materials used are seemingly endless. We wanted to do it in glass. Um, we didn't realize how ambitious that was going to be. But the reason we wanted to use glass was because it's transparent. That made us think of the, uh, uh, the fleetingness of life. If this drops, there's a potential for it to shatter. And that is talking about a gun in a way that we don't normally think of it, which is guns are powerful. Um, you know, they're, they're all about power. Where did it go from there? We thought that the project would end, but then we started thinking, why should it end? It's like we have a mold. What else could we put in it? One of the program's most powerful designs is the pencil gun. What I was saying was something along the lines of the pen is mightier than the sword. That's what I thought the message was. But everybody else who looks at it, especially young people, are just like school shootings. And one young man came in, and we weren't expecting this. He looked at it, and he said, this doesn't have an eraser. That means you can't take it back. One student and artist says that gun violence has gotten so bad that programs like One Gun Gone are needed now more than ever. It's definitely gotten worse. There's a whole bunch of stuff that kind of influence it, you know, there's a whole bunch of, when it, what, no matter what it is, whether it's the music people listen to, whether it's the people they surround themselves with, but I can definitely say that it's growing day by day. And our thanks to Bill Bartholomew for that report. That's our broadcast this evening. I'm Pamela Watts. I'm Michelle San Miguel. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories and past episodes at ripbs.org weekly or listen to our podcast available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you for joining us. Good night.